welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Monday, January 18th was the hard fought for Martin Luther King national holiday. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was born on January 15th, but the holiday is marked on the third Monday of January. Donald Trump, in his final days in the White House, marked the Martin Luther King holiday by issuing a, quote, racist school curriculum report, this according to CNN. Meanwhile, in Southern California and around the nation, car caravans and socially distanced events took place to emphasize the radical king, not the sanitized version of Martin Luther King uh, that politicians like to put forward. Indeed, the commission overseeing Trump's proposed overhaul of how history is taught in the United States justified their racist report that was issued on Martin Luther King Day by claiming that what they call identity politics are the opposite of the vision of Martin Luther King. They especially attack affirmative action. But Dr. King was a critique of capitalism. He said that, quote, we all too often have socialism for the rich and rugged free market capitalism for the poor, end of quote. He also offered a critique critique of Marxism, which he said offered only a partial truth, that while capitalism failed to discern the truth in collective enterprise, Marxism failed to see the truth in individual enterprise. He thought the path lay between the two. Today, we honor the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, and we also take a look at concerns of violence in Washington, D.C. at tomorrow's inauguration of uh, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris. Our guests are Katia Skitt, who is the Stitt who is the program director of WPFW, our sister station in Washington, D.C., and she will be joined by Kwasi Nkrumah, who is with the Martin Luther King Coalition of Southern California. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Before we go to our news headlines, let's hear a clip um, of Ruby D talking about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, as well as Harry Belafonte. Let's go to that clip now. Sometimes, yes, sometimes the good Lord. I say sometimes the good Lord accepts his own perfection and closes his eyes and goes ahead and takes his own good time. And he makes himself a man. Yes. Sometimes that man gets hold of the idea of what it is possible for him to do. And that man lets that idea guide him as he grows and struggles and stumbles and sorrows until finally he comes into his own God-given shape and achieves his own individual and lonely place in this world. It doesn't happen very often. Oh, no. But when it does... And even the stones will cry out and witness to his vision. And the hills and towers will echo his words and deeds. And his examples will 
will live in the hearts of men forever. The master doesn't make many like that, because that kind of man is dangerous to the sloppy ways of the world. That kind of man loves truth even more than he loves his life, or his wife, or his children. Because he's been designated and set aside to do the hard tasks that have to be done. That kind of man will do what he sees as justice, even if the earth yawns and swallows him down. And even then, his deeds will persist in the land forever. So you look at him, you look at him a while, and be thankful that the Lord let such a man touch our lives, even if it were for only a little while. When it is finally ours, this freedom, this liberty, this beautiful and terrible thing, needful to man as air, usable as the earth, when it belongs at last to our children, when it is truly instinct, brain matter, reflex action, when it is finally won, when it is more than the gaudy mumbo-jumbo of politicians, this man, this Negro, visioning a world where none is lonely, non-hunted. All righty, and that was the voice of Ruby D. And earlier you heard Harry Belafonte both giving tribute to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, now we'll go to our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. President-elect Joe Biden plans to unveil a sweeping immigration bill tomorrow, day one of his administration. The proposal reportedly will provide an eight-year path to citizenship for an estimated 11 million people living in this country without legal status. It's a massive reversal from the Trump administration's harsh immigration policies. The legislation puts Biden on track to deliver on a major campaign promise after four years of Trump's policies. Unlike previous proposals, Biden does not propose increased militarization at the border. That traditionally has been the quid pro quo Republicans demand for supporting legal status for this nation's undocumented immigrants. Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris pitched in on Martin Luther King Jr. Day service projects ahead of tomorrow's inaugural events. Their appearances came as a militarized and jittery Washington, D.C., prepared for a presidential inauguration under extraordinary security. 25,000 National Guard troops have been dispatched across the city to bolster security. Monuments have been closed to the public until after the events. Laura Ross Brown Tellum reports. President-elect Joe Biden loaded boxes of food to honor Martin Luther King Day yesterday. Vice President-elect Kamala Harris also volunteered. President Donald Trump issued three executive orders, one to make permits easier for judges, prosecutors, and law enforcement officers to carry concealed firearms. Another rather ambiguously protects Americans from facing criminal punishment for unintentionally violating regulations, and a garden with statues of heroes, which needs congressional sign-off. Trump's expected to issue scores of pardons and commutations in the final hours of his presidency, but not so far for his family and himself, according to Fox News. 
The Biden-Harris inauguration is expected to be light on in-person public attendance tomorrow and heavy on security. Biden's expected to quickly issue dozens of executive orders himself, many to reinstate policies from the last administration, including canceling the Keystone XL pipeline permit. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Laura ross Tellum. Biden and Harris will hold a memorial service today at the Lincoln Memorial's Reflecting Pool in Washington to honor the 400,000 U.S. lives lost to COVID-19. President Trump has no public events scheduled. Trump has broken with tradition by not inviting the Bidens to the White House ahead of the transition of power. Trump is expected to issue dozens of pardons today. No word on when they'll be made public. Trump has continued to rage about his election loss. The Washington Post reports that Trump is particularly upset that Lady Gaga, Jennifer Lopez, Tom Hanks and other stars have agreed to perform as part of Biden's inaugural celebrations after Hollywood stars largely boycotted Trump's inauguration because of his racist rhetoric. Trump reportedly plans to comfort himself with a last ceremony tomorrow morning as he flies to Mar-a-Lago shortly before Biden is inaugurated. Trump plans to leave from Joint Base Andrews with a military band and red carpet and possibly a flyover by Air Force fighter jets. The Senate returns to work today on the eve of Biden's inauguration. Senate panels will begin confirmation hearings on several cabinet nominees. This morning, Treasury Secretary nominee Janet Yellen, Homeland Secretary nominee Alejandro Mayorkas, and National Intelligence Director nominee Avril Haines are set to testify. This afternoon, Secretary of State nominee Antony Blinken and Defense Secretary nominee Lloyd Austin testify. The Senate remains under Republican control until three new Democratic senators are sworn into office. They are California's Alex Padilla, who is replacing Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, and two Democrats from Georgia, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. Guatemalan police and soldiers attacked a group of hundreds of Honduran migrants who had spent two nights stuck at a roadblock on a rural highway. Some migrants threw rocks while authorities launched tear gas and pushed the migrants with their riot shields back down the highway, beating some of them. The officers have mistreated us. They have treated us like dogs. Go to your country, they say. That's not fair. They should put their hands on their hearts. The children are not at fault. What they are doing is wrong. We have fled many things that are happening in Honduras, so it is not fair that we are treated like this, like dogs, like animals. Most of the migrants are young men, but some mothers pushed babies in strollers. In total, some eight to 9,000 Honduran migrants were believed to have entered Guatemala in the year's first caravan after departing from San Pedro Sula, Honduras, early Friday. Honduras has been battered by the COVID-19 pandemic and two major hurricanes that struck in November, leaving thousands homeless, miserable, and desperate. That's on top of existing poverty and persistent gang violence. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. All eyes on Washington, D.C. this week as President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris set to be inaugurated on Wednesday, January 20th. Wednesday's highly anticipated event will take place weeks after the bloody right-wing insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, which left five dead and dozens injured. Thousands of troops have been stationed in the Capitol where armored military trucks are parked in the middle of the streets to block traffic and subway stations and roads are 
closed. Uh, meanwhile, CNN is reporting that the FBI on Monday um, sent out an alert to law enforcement agencies that QAnon, um, people who follow QAnon, believe in QAnon, are discussing acting as National Guard soldiers in Washington, D.C., as they try to infiltrate uh, the inauguration. And this was reported also in the Washington Post. And the FBI also said it has monitored people downloading maps of sensitive areas around Washington. And they're also discussing how these um, locations could be utilized to penetrate uh, security. So a lot of concerns there. The in intelligence a report warning that QAnon members and individual people functioning as lone wolves have uh, said that they plan to travel to Washington, D.C. Uh, for the inauguration. Um, but um, meanwhile, the acting Secretary of Defense, Christopher Miller, he is saying that, quote, there's no intelligence indicating an insider threat, okay? Uh, that was also their attitude <laughs> before the invasion of the U.S. Capitol. Now, I'm really uh, delighted to um, welcome our guest, uh, Katia Stitt, who is the program director of WPFW, Pacifica Radio, our sister station in Washington, D.C. Katia, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Margaret. It is an honor and a pleasure. Okay, Katia, let us just go to a short clip now about the FBI vetting the National Guard. This is from WGN News. Yeah, good morning. Now, we've all heard about these threats of violence coming into U.S. capitals across the state, but now we're starting to hear that the U.S. defense is worried about the potential of an insider attack happening on Wednesday's inauguration. Now, right now, the threat is prompting the FBI to vet all 25,000 National Guard troops that are going to D.C. for Wednesday's inauguration. The vetting comes after January 6th violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol by pro-Trump rioters. The potential threat was made known yesterday by Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy. He says that officials are cautious and warned commanders to be on the lookout for any problems from within their ranks. Now, 25,000 National Guard members are coming from all states and territories, making it at least two and a half times the number of previous inaugurations. Now, the vetting includes the FBI running people's names through a database and watch list maintained by the Bureau to see if anything alarming comes up. Our members of the National Guard addressed the threat of an insider attack while protecting the Capitol over the weekend. Here's what they had to say. We're a community-based organization. We're here to protect the citizens of the United States just as much as we are the seat of our government. So no one should fear us unless they have ill will in their heart. So every guardsman takes an oath, and it's to defend the Constitution from enemies foreign and domestic. And uh, as we've seen, uh, sometimes the enemies are a little closer to home. Now, the military routinely checks service members for extremist connections, and service members were found to have been at that pro-Trump rally on January 6th, but there's still no telling about exactly how many were in attendance. Back to you in the studio. All righty, so Katia, there you go. Now, you work in the area, the Washington, D.C. area. You have to live there with all of this, and two things I'd like you to discuss. Uh, number one, 
How worried are people? I know you're keeping your ear uh, to the ground on, on what's happening and how concerned are people who live and work in the, the, the greater D.C. area about what potentially could happen? And secondly, um, the militarized Washington, D.C. and the impact, the practical impacts that have on people like yourself and others who live and work in the D.C. area, Katia. So we are, WPFW is right at 20th and K, uh, literally kind of in the, in the middle of things. The uh, Lincoln Memorial is uh, at 17th and Constitution, and it's walking distance from our office. Um, I've been downtown several times now since the militarism began, and there are scores of National Guards and uh, police, metropolitan police vehicles blocking intersections, um, creating a barrier to most of the city beyond, uh, below M Street, let's say. So you can't, like for us, many of our programmers, we have 80 programmers, many of them are older. They cannot make the walk from M Street up to uh, uh, 20th and K for the station. And on top of that, many of them are, and these are men and women that, you know, I've known for decades. Many of them are really scared about what could happen. Um, I was, I've been talking to neighbors and friends that live in D.C., and everyone in the city feels very much on edge. And it's two things. It's the presence of, you know, large Humvees blocking the roads, and then you have a National Guard or two National Guards with their, their um, weapons in front of them as if they are at the ready to fire if need be. Um, that, as you can imagine, is quite disconcerting. But it's also not knowing who these guards and these police officers are, because we know that law enforcement has been infiltrated. We've known that since the 2006 report, FBI report. So, and then the Brennan Center also wrote about the same thing, hidden in plain sight. So on two levels, um, Washingtonians are quite concerned. In terms of the practical impact, um, if you are a person that relies on bus service or metro service, or even, frankly, having to drive. You can't walk. Um, it, it is a real inconvenience to get to work, to get to groceries, to get home, because really, literally, at every turn, you just can't move. You can only get so far. Um, you can walk the city, but again, if you're impaired somehow, some way, and you can't walk, it's a problem. I know for us, our um, the closest metro station we have now to the station is DuPont Circle. There are three others that are much closer, but they are all closed. But the, so that is one thing. It's several blocks to walk. And um, the other part of that is that if there are only certain stations open, that means that counter, I say counter protesters, because clearly I'm on the left, but these white supremacist Trump protesters would congregate at, theoretically at the open stations after staying. And we saw this during the insurrection. Many of the people who protested and who reached the Capitol were staying in Fairfax, Virginia, staying in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland. In other words, not staying in the city, but, but accessing the city via uh, metro. So that's another concern, that you will be uh, caught and trapped in a, a group of um, these white nationalists, sometimes armed uh, groups, and, and your safety will be compromised. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the thing about it is in Southern California, we have already had um, that we know of, there may be more, two incidences of black people, one woman and one man in downtown L.A., um, attacked by uh, Trump supporters, including these uh, white supremacists, for no other reason other than the color of their skin. And Katia, we know that um, you're of African descent like I am, and black people generally, when we see law enforcement, a lot of times our reaction is concern, right? Your stress level goes up and, and you Absolutely. hope that you're going to survive the encounter while others may see uh, protection. So, you know, just tell us about that a little bit, because what sure. you just described is alarming that you have these groups of people on public transport. And here you have black people and other people of color having to take public transport. The mayor in Atlanta, she had actually suggested that black people stay indoors over the, the next uh, few days. Katia. Right. Well, you know, Margaret, um, that is an interesting point. I approached one of the officers, and I have to tell you, every time I approach an officer, I my heart races a bit. I don't know what their reaction will be. And you can imagine now approaching a National Guard officer with their weapons drawn, you know, they don't know if I'm coming to harm them. They don't know, you know, they don't know anything about me except the fact that I'm African-American. I will say that I in all honesty, I usually try to ask questions of black officers when I see them. I do not approach often their white counterparts because um, I'm just not sure what will happen, what the outcome will be. And I will say in a city where black and brown people um, reside in large numbers, larger than some other cities, you know, we're like Chicago or Detroit or something, larger than some other cities, it is quite disconcerting. You know, I, I worry about my African-American nephew who has to travel back and forth to work. I, I worry about um, the children and even adults, African-American adults who have to travel back and forth to work. And let us not forget that many black and brown people rely on public transportation for their jobs. And they often have jobs where they just can't call out. If they call out, they'll be fired. It's just that simple. They they are not as fortunate as you and I are. And so um, the extra burden of having to figure out how you can get to work and really run this gauntlet to get the work to work, I, I see it as another injury to black people. You know, we have a black mayor here in D.C., uh, Muriel Bowser, who is now vowing to uh, keep us safe after this insurrection. But really, we were not kept safe by the police when we were out there protesting this summer. So black people, brown people, people of conscience know in their hearts that often the police are not for us. And um, that's kind of another layer on top of the militarization. I was joking. I, uh, I don't know if you know the singer Gregory Porter, but I was joking with a friend of mine. It looks like 1960-what in the streets of Washington, D.C. Yeah. And... Um, it just adds a, a, a level of burden and a, a level of um, discomfort on top of the, the things that we still see in this city, which is poverty and racism. And, of course, now we've added the militarism to the city. So we have all three of Dr. King's evils very present. 
Absolutely. And just finally, before you have to dash, Katia, I know you are involved in coordinating the Pacifica Radio's national broadcast. I think it'll be carried on three stations, including this one, KPFK, and also our affiliate stations, where Sojourner Truth is also heard uh, covering the inauguration. Just tell us a little bit about that. What can our listeners expect, Katia? Certainly. Well, you know, again, Margaret, and we're so happy that you'll be joining us as well. Um, during our programming, um, during we, we decided to center the inaugural coverage in um, Dr. King, in the beloved community. So um, what we have here is uh, taken from his speech, the I Have a Dream speech, which is actually titled uh, Normalcy Never Again. That was the original title of the speech. So that is what we're calling our inaugural coverage, Normalcy Never Again. Uh, a Biden administration and the people's mandate, and um, they will hear a historical context of a neoliberal agenda, which is what we're moving back into. And um, for that, we have Gerald Horn, we have Dr. Chris, we have uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, we have Chris Hedges, we have Andy Z. Um, for then, of course, we will have we will be carrying live Biden swearing in and his um, acceptance speech. And then we will go to you, Margaret, as well as Dr. Uh, Reverend Dr. Barber and Julianne Malveaux to talk about uh, what a moral mandate looks like and what the Biden administration truly needs to do to, to make people whole, the people whole, that is. Um, and then finally, we will uh, turn to what a people's mandate, visioning a people's mandate. And there we'll have uh, Linda Sarsour. We have a wonderful uh, young millennial um, activist, uh, the uh, CEO of the Georgia Project, the New Georgia Project, uh, Nse Ufat, joining us. Um, we have Dr. James Early and uh, 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 Dr. Linda Carter joining us, and they will be talking about visioning a people's mandate. So, plus we'll have um, vignettes of people on the ground, what they're thinking, how they see the transformation of America happening, what their thoughts are. And we'll hear from our listeners. So we're delighted that you wow. agreed to join us and that our sister station is taking us. That's that's right. And that starts actually tomorrow right after Sojourner Truth goes on, on yeah. the air at, at 8 tomorrow morning. So thank you for your work and thank you so much for joining us, Katia. I look forward to working with you tomorrow. Thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. All righty. And um, we are now going to uh, introduce our next guest. The rest of the program, we're going to be focused on uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King as we honor him today. I'd like to welcome uh, to Sojourner Truth, Kwasi Nkrumah, who became active in the civil rights movement at a very early age. He was primarily influenced by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, as well as the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. During the late 1960s, he became a leader in student movements in Washington, D.C. in the 70s and 80s. He became a well-known tenant and community organizer in both Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, Maryland. Quasi uh, was a labor activist and organizer for various local and national unions for 35 years. He has been a major figure in environmental justice movements for several decades. He has served as the co-chair of the Martin Luther King Coalition of Greater Los Angeles for more than 10 years. Quasi and Truma, welcome. Hi, Margaret. How are you this morning? 
oh good it's it's been a, a bit too long here so quasi uh just yesterday you were involved in an event um that focused on the radical king uh tell us why you think such events about the radical king are so important right now. I don't know if you heard the the intro, but um, the Trump administration chose Martin Luther King Day to basically um, attack affirmative action, um, issuing a racist school uh, curriculum, and uh, which, among other things, dampens down uh, the impact of slavery and the genocide of Native Americans. Uh, Kwasi Nkrumah. Yeah, well, I, I think that we have to uh, realize that that was the basic agenda of, of uh, not only Trump, but the very large mob of people, not all of whom have invaded the Capitol, um, who really want to turn back the clock in this country. Uh, that's been their agenda from the beginning. Uh, so there's no surprise that he would choose Dr. King's uh, uh, birthday uh, as a day to attack the basic advances that Dr. King helped to introduce in this country uh, in his time. Uh, and that is uh, precisely why uh, that and, and the situation that you all were talking about in Washington, D.C. Uh, right now, which is not limited to Washington, it's just a, a nationwide uh, phenomenon. We are witnessing the mass resurgence of racism, violent, violent racism, along the same types of lines uh, that, that black people confronted uh, uh, in the wake of the Civil War during Reconstruction. We're almost in a replay uh, of the full dynamic uh, of the, re the attempts now, attempts now, and, and successfully done, basically, at that time, to reverse the second reconstruction, which Dr. King spearheaded in this country. Uh, so, yes, we, we need to be much more clear about uh, Dr. King's message, uh, his vision, uh, his commitment, and we need to really learn from his example uh, and apply it to our conditions today because we are confronting uh, a major attempt, again, to turn back the wheels of time, um, racially, economically, and otherwise. Uh, and obviously, uh, there has been a great deal of support. Uh, one of the head headlines yesterday I saw in the paper was that a new poll is showing that 74 percent of all those who are registered in the Republican Party in the United States still rate uh, uh, Donald Trump very highly. They have, they, they have not been at all affected uh, by the uprising in the U.S. Capitol uh, or any of the other events that have been unfolding uh, this year and, and in the past few years uh, to reverse their course because they are, in fact, on a course to, to, to roll back the wheels of time. Right, and and Kwasi and Kruma means you know listening to uh, some of the people who invaded uh, the Capitol and and those outside, a lot of them rail about socialism and how Biden Harris will move this country uh, towards socialism. And it seems as though in the United States the word socialism is a, such a frightening term, um, and that's not the case actually in most of the rest of the world. And um, a quote 
quote, you have been sending around a series of, of quotes from Martin Luther King, which I really appreciate, Quasi, you doing that work. But one of them uh, says, we have, this is Martin Luther King, quote, we have deluded ourselves into believing the myth that capitalism grew and prospered out of the Protestant ethic of hard work and sacrifices. Capitalism was built on the exploitation of black slaves and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black and white, both here and abroad. And of course, I would add to that um, the genocide of Native American people. So Quasi, uh, um, your your thoughts, I mean, on, on what that particular quote and why it's really important to, to really um, revision or for people to know how militant indeed the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was because he leaned towards socialism, didn't he, Quasi? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, he, he did. In, in fact, he, he, you know, he, he openly on, off, often expressed to, to his co-workers and, and others close to him that he was, in fact, a socialist uh, and believed very strongly that there had to be a basic redistribution of wealth, not only in this country, but, but on a global basis, uh, to end injustice and racism and militarism and all these other evils that people talk about uh, as platitudes. And, of course, you know, Dr. King had to be a, a very radical uh, black man, frankly, uh, to do any of the things that he did in, in, in the, the hardcore bedrock of, of, of the Southern, you know, Confederacy. Uh, I mean, where a, a black person could, was readily lynched simply for not moving off the sidewalk if a white person said so, uh, or for looking a white person in, in the eye. Uh, that was so common uh, throughout the U.S. South in particular. So, you know, for, for someone to, to, to stand up or even kneel down and pray in resistance to all of those practices, you had to be a very radical, very deeply committed person, uh, which Dr. King obviously was. Um, you know, and I, I just, <laughs> I think that, you know, it's incumbent on us to get much more familiar uh, with Dr. King's actual ideas. Uh, we get to, a lot of it gets lost in these platitudes uh, during uh, celebrations of his birth and, and so forth. And one of the things that we've done here in LA is we've tried to, over the years, the MLK Coalition has tried to bring some of those ideas into uh, the Kingdom Day parades, which has not done a very good job, in our opinion, uh, in preserving Dr. King's heritage, because that, those parades have, have been loaded with uh, ROTC and military floats and this and that and the other thing, all things that Dr. King was quite opposed to. So, you know, we, we are facing a situation where we really have to dig down and become much more uh, uh, clear of what Dr. King's motivations were, what his ideas were, why it was that he moved from civil rights uh, to the Poor People's Campaign and to opposition to the Vietnam War, and why he didn't separate any one of those things from the other. And that is part of what we have got to get our, our handle on today, because we are confronting, obviously, a very radical turn uh, to the right and, and to the past uh, uh, by millions of people in this country who, who are 
determined uh, not to listen to reason, not to see what is in front of them, and, and really to, to falsify almost anything and everything in the interest uh, of reversing the course of this country. So, you know, <laughs> we are in a, a, a situation where we, in fact, must defend ourselves in just about every aspect of our lives today, whether we're talking about employment, whether we're talking about institutional racism, whether we're talking about police brutality, uh, all of these things, the abuse of political power, uh, the, the violation of human rights, right and left, every day. And it's becoming more profound, more difficult, and more radical from the right on a daily basis. And so, yes, we need to become very familiar uh, with Dr. King's, radical, Dr. King's radicalism uh, because People know, uh, I think, in a, a, a softer sense what Dr. King was about, but he was motivated by very radical ideas, and, and we need to really investigate that uh, and find out what Dr. King really was about. There's, there's a very good book out called uh, The Radical King that you know, looks at, at that issue and, and, and cites many of Dr. King's uh, uh, insights on critical problems and the, the radical ideas he had about where we needed to go to solve those problems. Right, and, and quasi, I mean, within that debate about the radical king, there's even a debate within the debate. Um, for example, um, we have an, an article, I think, that was written in Counterpunch by Eric Mann, who's a pro programmer here at KPFK, in which he says the Democrats and President Obama say John Lewis nonviolence, Dr. King nonviolence, without acknowledging that the essence of Dr. King's legacy was a pro-communist, black nationalist, anti-imperialism, in which it was nonviolent direct action. That was the centerpiece of his philosophy. Now, if you contrast that with um, the multiracial movement that Dr. King was part of, but that he also not only was a critique of uh, capitalism, but I'm sure a lot of our friends in the left uh, really don't want to hear that he also offered a critique of Marxism. He said Marxism failed and still fails to see that life is individual and uh, personal. And he talked about, you know, of course, this was developed in in the 19th century. Just just any any thoughts on you? Because within the debate of the radical king, what I'm saying is that there is that debate within that debate, right? Um, any any thoughts, um, quasi and Krumah? Yeah, well, I I I, I think that Dr. King had, had a very profound understanding that almost every uh, movement that has ever existed. Uh, to improve human life on this planet, whether it was a religious movement, uh, a political movement, or a social movement, that all of those movements uh, in various ways uh, have become tainted uh, by, let's just say, human shortcomings. Uh, and so he had a very critical, he had his eyes open, had a very critical view of everything that was going on in the world. Uh, he didn't just kind of blindly fall into um, uh, a kind of uh, vague uh, anti-capitalist perspective. He had very strong reasons for, for uh, being opposed to capitalism, but he also was able to see that the, the same tendencies that corrupted 
uh, let's say American democracy, if we, we want to uh, phrase it like that, had also created, uh, uh, corrupted uh, some of the systems that had, had evolved in, in other countries, such as the Soviet Union um, uh, and others, uh, where, you know, the rights of the individual were not being respected. And, in fact, the, the, the people themselves were not able to wield power uh, because people became very power, who were power-hungry, decided to grab that power for themselves. And he didn't have, have any blind uh, uh, adherence uh, to go along with that. He had a critical view of the world, the whole world. Um, and I, I think that uh, it's very clear, as you said, when you read Dr. King, that he had incorporated a lot of this. And at the same time, he became one of the, the most outspoken critics of what is wrong with our society. He did not blindly either uh, uh, engage uh, in the anti-communist uh, mentality that was, was so prevalent in his time uh, to the point that even though he had criticism of what was going on in some of these other countries, he was very clear about what was wrong here and what needed to be corrected in our society. He was very clear about these things. That's why he carried the struggle down to Georgia, Mississippi, Louisiana, all of the hardcore zones of, of the United States where people were uh, uh, afraid to go. I mean, you know, you had a lot of uh, people in, in the northern states who were quite militant in the black movement who were, frankly, afraid to go into those states. But that was where he yeah. lived. That's where he worked. That's where he had initiated his civil rights activism uh, and his, his campaigns on behalf of humanity as a whole. And that is part of what we need to learn about Dr. King. And that is part of what we should be inspired to emulate. Right. Well, I'm afraid Quasi and Kruma, we are going to have to uh, leave it there. Um, thank you so very much for all of your work. It's been way too long, uh, Quasi and Kruma, that you have been on our airwaves. And uh, we hope to speak with you again very, very soon. And in, in parting, I, I am reminded that one, there's such a difference between what Marx actually said and people who consider themselves Marxists, as you well know, uh, Quasi. And one of the things that Marx did say about capitalism Capitalism is that they do exploit uh, the person, meaning people, as well as the soil. And a lot of people aren't aware of that environmental uh, bent of Marx either. But Kwasi Nkrumah, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you, Margaret, and for your work as well. All righty. We are going to take a short station break. And when we come up for the rest of the hour, we have uh, uh, looked and selected uh, some of the words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King to share with you and giving you a sense of the range of his opinion. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Alrighty, 
and that is Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around by The Roots. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at www.sotrueradio.org. We have a community calendar there, videos and lots of uh, articles um, that we don't necessarily get to on the air. And uh, also, if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also worldwide and nationwide on SoundCloud. By the way, all of our uh, shows are archived on SoundCloud. So if you've missed any of the shows, just go there and you could find them uh, and you could find them by topic as well. I think you can. Um, So today in our tradition, what we'd like to do is give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the state of Atlanta in the city of Atlanta, Georgia, in the state of Atlanta, Georgia. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the, let's do Holland today. Let's do the Netherlands, our SoundCloud listeners today. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And it is a day that we are also honoring and remembering the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. On Monday, January 18th, millions of people across the United States and around the world marked the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Day, which is observed on the third Monday of January each year. Uh, Dr. King was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. He inspired a global generation of people fighting for social justice through his practice of nonviolent civil disobedience at a time when state violence, voter suppression, and other oppression uh, against black people and people in the South was rife. And some people are trying to return us to that era. Martin Luther King showed the world how to fight against injustice with love and uh, people power. Uh, What I'd like to do now for the rest of the hour is for you to hear some of the words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And let's go first to the letter from the Birmingham jail. Um, uh, People are saying that it is one of the most important documents of the civil rights era. Let's go to hear the words of Dr. King. My dear fellow clergymen, While confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I'm sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of brutality is widely known. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than in any other city in the nation. These are the hard, brutal facts of the case. You may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis 
and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. You speak of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? When you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park and see her developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people, when you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored, when your first name becomes nigger, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title Mrs. When you are hired by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stands, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degrading and degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. You assert that our actions, even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitate violence. Isn't this like condemning Jesus because his unique God-consciousness and never-ceasing devotion to God's will precipitated the evil act of crucifixion? I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are at present misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of the Almighty God are embodied in our echoing demands. All righty. And uh, that Dr. King chiding um, some of his liberal uh, supporters, some of those liberal supporters abandoned him after he came out um, 
against the war in Vietnam. Um, now let's give you a taste of the global uh, Martin Luther King, where he talks about his visit to India. And I, I wanted to play that especially because there's a huge movement happening in India right now as we are on the air of farmers, uh, many of them uh, women and children, 71% of those who work on the land in India, women, against what the Trump supporter, their prime minister, Modi, is trying to do in terms of uh, taking land and basically uh, forcing them into starvation. But let's hear what Dr. King had to say about his visit to India. Some few months ago, it was my good fortune to journey to that great country known as India. And I never will forget the experience. It was a marvelous experience to talk with the great leaders of India and to meet the people of that country in the villages and in the cities. And these experiences will remain dear to me as long as the cords of memory shall lengthen. But I say to you this morning that as I traveled through India, there were those depressing moments. For how can one avoid being depressed when he sees millions of people going to bed hungry at night? How can one avoid being depressed when he sees with his own eyes millions of people sleeping on the sidewalks at night? No beds to sleep in, no houses to go in. How can one avoid being concerned when he discovers that out of India's population of 400 million people, more than 350 million, make an annual income of less than $70 a year, and most of these people have never seen a doctor or a dentist. And as I noticed these conditions, something within me cried out, can we in America stand idly by and not be concerned? An answer came, oh no, because the destiny of the United States is tied up with the destiny of India and every other nation. And I started thinking about the fact that in our country we spend more than a million dollars a day to store surplus food. And I said to myself, I know where we can store that food free of charge, in the wrinkled stomachs of the millions of people in Asia and Africa and South America who go to bed hungry at night. And maybe we spend far too much of our national budget establishing military bases around the world rather than bases of genuine concern and understanding. All I'm saying is simply this. All life is interrelated. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly, it affects all indirectly. John Donne placed it in graphic terms. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And he goes on toward the end to say, any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. And therefore, never sin to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. 
all life interrelated, a global Dr. Martin Luther King. And he was criticized um, for his global positions. There are were people uh, among the liberals at the time, the church organizations, but also the civil rights leaders who did not want him to get involved in any foreign policy, like stick with uh, civil rights. And there is very much that tendency, there's still that pull uh, today in the United States of people who are involved in social change only to be concerned about what is happening in the United States and not understanding, as Martin Luther King uh, said, that uh, all life is interrelated. No man is an island and we uh, are all dependent on each other. So what is happening in India, what is happening on the continent of Africa, what is happening in Asia, in the Caribbean region, and Latin America, um, we pay some attention to because all of that impacts what we're doing. And also given the, the global role, in particular the, the military role that the United States plays, we know that there's a lot of interference um, done by the United States in terms of regime change, um, fomenting coups, et cetera, in many parts of the world. So Dr. King definitely had evolved from where he began with the Montgomery bus boycott. I'm afraid um, we are out of time, but I do promise you that all this week uh, we will share with you some of our favorite uh, words from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, where you will uh, hear his voice. But we are out of time. I'd like to thank today's guest and today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. And we want to give a big shout out to Mr. T. Teddy Robinson, our audio engineer, who's back. Teddy, we missed you. <laughs> Good um, to be working with you again. Our assistant producer, Romero Funes. If you like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230. Go online to PacificaRadioArchives.org. Y'all stay safe. We're going to go out with some of the music of Mahalia Jackson. Mm-hmm.